are listening to the Story Forward podcast, and you are quite lucky to be doing it. We are your hosts. I am Larry Rosen. And I am Christian Wynn. And we are here to invite you to join us in the world of story. This season, our third slash fourth season, stories from the world of sports. Now. Yes. You can't have big time sports without having big time sports fans. No. And that's what we're looking into on this episode. We have assembled three storytellers who are going to give us, you know, it's great because I don't think we planned it this way, but we really end up with fandom from several angles. Oh, we absolutely do. Within yeah. these three stories. We will have Grant Faulkner, who the prominent executive editor of NaNoWriMo and an author in his own right, to talk about this, the many times he has intersected with sports legends. Yep. And yeah, thanks to a job he had in the 80s. A fancy hotel in, uh, in fancy North Carolina hotel. in Chapel Hill. And then we will have four-time Emmy Award winner Justine Gubar, formerly of ESPN, now of the actual Emmys themselves. I know. Who's really going to change speeds. Yeah. And she said she's going to like have the Emmys, the sports Emmys are going to promote this podcast. Which so. is awesome. I know. And also her story is... Basically an excerpt from her... From her book, Fanaticus. Which is about... Sometimes like fans being, go overboard. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, and one time incident in Ohio. Yeah. And finally, we'll have uh, Boise author Ross Hargraves. Yes. Who will be reading a short story of his. Uh, um, I'm not, I don't want to give any of it away, right? Because if you no. can't say anything about it, you're like, oh, what's that all it's about? It's based on real life experience, what uh, the term I, the, uh, the, I kind of got into this in our other intro part. So it yeah. might be a redundancy, but something that happened to him, autobiographical, but mm-hmm. also Perhaps fictionalized a little, fictionalized. A little bit. Also from other character in the story. And anyway, so Mr. Wynn, we have a couple minutes before we turn to the stories. Have you ever met a sports hero? <sighs> That's a good question. How did it go if you did? Not even a sports hero. You know, I haven't met the, uh, a sports hero. I don't feel like I had any kind of conversation with them. But I mean, I've been... Charles Barkley adjacent in my life at a nightclub in Seattle. That's back not in the 90s. safe. I know. Said well, in the balls. 90s, it wasn't safe. Well, yeah, it was a, the club. I, I could tell the story, but, but I mean, we were just watching. We we're like, whoa, they were in town to play the Sonics, and this is a big time rivalry, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And I feel like I might have been there, but I was remembering a time at a probably a different nightclub in Seattle when we saw Alton Lister. Oh, yeah. And someone else on the Sonics. I forget. Hopefully it was uh, Xavier McDaniel. No, it wasn't <laughs> X-Man. Um, but I did have, you know, I guess Lou Pinella as a coach, like I mentioned, I think, in part of the story with Grant, that he did bum a smoke off me at a place called Thieves in Seattle. And, but <laughs> that was, I don't know if I could call myself a super fan because I'm a pretty miserable fan. But when I was 10 years old, I got to go to Shea Stadium for my first home Mets game. We drove mm-hmm. all the way in from Pennsylvania. And before the game, this is 1975, uh, before the game, I was watching guys were running wind sprints in the outfield. I recognized a rookie relief pitcher named Rick Baldwin. And I yelled, all right, Rick. And he turned and <laughs> waved. And I'll tell you what, for the rest of that season, guess who my favorite baseball player was? Rick. Rick Baldwin. 
All right. Well, let's let yeah. the uh, should we let the storytellers take the show over? I think so, but let's... I will let, like listeners know that I may be meeting Reggie Jackson soon. <laughs> so I keep bringing that up. We tell our Reggie Jackson stories when we do the Grant part, don't we? I think, I think so. we do. Well, I just imagine I just kind of pre name dropping, name dropping, pre name dropping. Let's go to Grant first. All right, our next storyteller, uh, also a friend of the podcast. You may remember him coming on uh, in the past. Grant Faulkner is his name. He is the executive director of National Novel Writing Month, NaNoWriMo, for those of you in the know, and the author of multiple books, including his latest, All the Comfort Sin Can Provide. I always screw that I up. I just bought that. All the Sin <laughs> Comfort Can Provide. Uh, a book of disturbing short stories. You have a book, well, I'll save this for afterwards. Um, he's also written pep talks for writers and Brave the Page and Fisher's 100 Word Stories. Oh, yeah, you're still involved with 100 Word Stories, right, Grant? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Founded yeah. the site 2011. Oh. Yeah, still going strong. All right. Bay Area. Do we want to bring up the, the reality show legend. at all? Yes, an executive <laughs> producer of a reality show. They just shot America's the pilot. America's Next Great Author. America's, America's Next, Next Great, great author. author. Can you believe I know someone this famous? It's amazing. I, you know, I can't believe I've ever met him, yeah. but I have. And speaking of famous, Grant is going to actually break with our format a little bit and tell a trio of stories uh, about run-ins with professional athletes. Uh, I don't know if you call yourself a super fan, but definitely a fan. So he's going to tell a story, and then we'll go back and forth a little bit about the story, because I'm sure each story will raise questions among us. Yep. Uh, So why don't we just start with the first one, Grant? Yeah, they're little slices of life here. And, you know, we see our sports heroes, you know, on the playing fields and the basketball courts and on TV. But, you know, it's those moments when we see them in a totally, totally mundane circumstances, I think, that are maybe the most interesting and the mm-hmm. most telling. And my first encounter came in, I think it was 76 or 77, I can't remember which. And I grew up in southeast Iowa. And it was a big event for me this one like weekend my father got tickets to the royals versus the yankees i think it was like late july i mean this was the ultimate um you know rivalry back then oh yeah Uh, both these teams both of these teams were great just to refresh people's memories the royals had george brett amos Mm. otis hal mccray the yankees had a whole slew of people George Steinbrenner, of course, uh, Billy Martin, who I have a, an eternal fascination with, uh, <laughs> Thurman Munson, Chris Shambliss, Ron Guidry, Greg Nettles, Mickey Rivers, Luke Pinella, and then Reggie Jackson, of course. And so it was a big vacation for us. We didn't usually stay in fancy hotels, but my father got the fanciest hotel in Kansas City. It was I know it was at the Crown Center in, in Kansas City. I'm not sure if it was called the Crown Center, but when we got there, and I was this spindly, nerdy baseball fan 12 years old at the time and uh but the one thing i figured out i was like the yankees have to be staying in this hotel and so i was old enough had enough moxie to call the front desk and to relentlessly ask for different players names to speak to them in particular <laughs> reggie jackson i probably called that front desk like 50 <laughs> times i can't believe it um, you know but but i but i was a yankees fan i was the type of baseball fan as a kid where i didn't just know the baseball happening, you know, uh, in, in real life in the moment, I, I knew all the lore, I knew all the history, you know, and I, I later realized that this would separate me from people who actually were good at sports. <laughs> oh. I, knew, I, I knew all the history of sports. And so I was, I was very steeped in, in Yankees history. So anybody who wore a Yankees uniform was like a Greek God to me. 
Um, so anyway, no Reggie Jackson did not show up. I saw all three games. They were actually kind of boring games where they didn't deliver like uh, one might think they would. Um, but as we were checking out, getting in the car, about ready to head back to Iowa, I see this grumpy Roy White. If you don't know Roy <laughs> White, he was the left fielder of the Yankees. He looked really grumpy. He looked really hard to approach, but, but I liked him as a player, and, and he never saw him smile on the field. He was grumpy throughout life. Um, but he was a good left fielder. He batted 286 that year. Um, and so I approached him, asked him for an autograph. He gave me a very grumpy autograph. I don't think that's <laughs> one word, but he did give me the autograph. Uh, and so that was my, my encounter. Um, <clears throat> it's interesting because back then in the 70s, the distance between the layman and a professional athlete wasn't, I don't think, as great as it is now. I would think. No, no I don't think so. I mean, these were guys who sometimes had to get jobs in the off season. Yeah, I imagine I, so. Maybe not the Yankees. Yeah, I, I, you should Google this, but you know that was when when Reggie free agency was very new back then, hmm. and and Reggie Jackson, of course, was like the highest paid I think baseball player at that time. But, mm-hmm. but I remember, if my memory is correct, I think he was getting five hundred thousand a year. So, you know, okay. I mean, yeah. that's a lot still. But but I mean, like like you said, it wasn't it wasn't like it is today. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Just real quick, like there was probably a pretty good shot I could call the hotel room and get. Well, <laughs> yeah, well, I was gonna. It's kind of cracking yeah. me up that you were calling the hotel rooms with your little twelve-year-old <laughs> voice and just instead of just hanging out yeah. in the lobby. Yeah. I know. What did right. they? What did they say to you? What did the front desk clerk say? I think they were very professional, and they just said, "No one by that name is staying." No. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Reggie. All right, story number two. Let's ramp it up a bit. Speaking of grouchy athletes. This was was 1987, the year I graduated from Grinnell College with an English major. And my first job out of college was doing room service at the Hotel Europa in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, where I'd moved with some of my friends. And the thing I know about the Hotel Europa is that it was the fanciest hotel in town. And so anybody of any note who came through Chapel Hill, which there were a lot, actually, because of the university, um, they stayed at the hotel. So David Bowie stayed there, Jesse Jackson, Pink Floyd. Uh, I should tell you that David Bowie and Jesse Jackson stories, actually, they're, they're, they're the best here. But <laughs> the, the other um, notable or one of the other notable groups of people were the Lakers, the whole team. And I, they stayed there somehow because Michael Jordan got them there to play some sort of exhibition game. And so one morning they filled the whole dining room. Um, except for Magic. That was my one disappointment. Magic wasn't there. Hmm. Not sure where he was. Maybe he just slipped in. But um, hmm. it was interesting because all the players uh, sat in some sort of grouping throughout the dining room. Pat Riley sat with somebody who was probably a coach and was very talkative with him. And Kareem sat alone in this kind of very hallowed <laughs> space that no one was really going to um, come into. You know, even even Pat Riley. Pat Riley was the nearest one to him. And when Pat Riley talked to him, because I sat and I just basically watched this whole interaction, um, is that um, he did it very kind of, you know, with trepidation, you know, very carefully. Uh, so no one was bothering Kareem. Um, but the guy who was waiting, you know, Rod, Rodney was this, this uh, fabulous, charismatic, really talkative, uh, funny cook. And Rod, Rodney kind of ran the restaurant in his way. And the waiter, uh, Fred, who had uh, Kareem, Fred was no sports fan at all, very proper guy. 
um, Rodney insisted on getting Kareem's uh, autograph before serving him his breakfast. And he held, he held Kareem's breakfast. Kareem had this huge breakfast, and Rodney held it hostage until uh, Fred would go out and get the, 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 uh, the, the autograph. And basically, so Rodney had the whole plate over a trash can yelling at Fred to go get the, the uh, Kareem's autograph, and Fred would not do it. And Rodney took the whole – he just swooped it off like with a spatula. The whole breakfast <laughs> cooked went into the trash can. Uh, so the only thing I know, I don't know what the interaction was like, but Fred went and asked Kareem for the, his autograph. Kareem gave it to him, which kind of surprised me. That surprises yeah. me. <laughs> he was and, hungry. Uh, the only thing I did is, is I, I made sure that as Kareem walked out of the dining room that I could walk right behind him to kind of – how big he was how big was he and he he was a good he was a seven footer he he, he measured yeah he was about a foot taller than me um <laughs> but i'd never encountered seven feet tall people before so i just wanted to see how that felt um and and you know actually there were a couple uh north carolina players jr richards and rick fox who they weren't seven footers but i saw them at bars around town and i would like follow them out too just to kind of get a sense of their size that's funny i can't think of a worse athlete to pull that on than Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. I know. And so Poor he- Kareem. I know. Did he find, so do they make him another breakfast then, I guess? They made him another breakfast. Okay. He has got, got a late, I don't know if he knew anything that happened. I mean, but he, he was otherwise, he, he lived up to his reputation of just being a very quiet guy who did not want to be bothered. You know, he was he was not seeking anybody, anything out. He just wanted to sit there and read. He um, had- none of, the, none of the other players talked to him at all. He had the reputation when I worked at NBA.com of being the worst chat host in the history of NBA.com. You told me that or once, yeah. Guest, yeah. He just did not want to be there. He was curt. He was sarcastic. Bad day for and him. Now he's super funny. He won- I know, and he's like a sage character. He was pretty he's good in, guy, in airplane. Yeah. He was good yeah. in airplane. <laughs> uh, but I, yeah, that, so did you go to University of North Carolina? No, we, we, we moved there because we had we had – our criteria was we needed to move to a region we'd never lived, live in a college town, and live in a college town with a good music scene. Yeah, that's so a, yeah. checked all three boxes. That's a great. Yeah, I've been it there. Good, it was good criteria, and I recommend it to every uh, young graduate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, <laughs> great. Uh, that was and, well, and then and then work room service at the, the best hotel in town. That's now, a good so. call. Yeah. Well, speaking of Chapel Hill, it hit us up with your third and final story. The third story. Uh, who, who's the most famous basketball player you think to ever graduate from UNC? Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan. Yeah, you got it. You got it. I thought you guys might. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Quinn, uh, Jerry Stackhouse. Uh, <laughs> I was trying to think of a good one. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, so Jordan was a regular at the Hotel Europa, and I don't know why. I, I remember being excited to wait on him, but I don't know why I wasn't more excited because I just Googled him before this call. So this was 87. So he'd been in the league for four years, and he averaged 35 points that year. And this would have been like Jordan just before Jordan. I mean, Jordan was already big, but it was right before he was about to go up a step and get bigger, right? It was like the, the Lakers and the Celtics were just beginning to wind down their kind of dominance. Um, but anyway, uh, I probably waited on him five or six times. Every time it was exactly the same. I always think about this because Jordan, I've heard him tell a story about his first year in the NBA and how uh, everyone on the Bulls was was doing drugs and partying after the games except him. And he totally lived up to that uh, when I uh, waited on him because any time I brought food to his room, he was always just hanging out with a kind of hanger-on type friend, not not an athlete, 
just somebody he, he knew, I assume, from Chapel Hill. And they were just sitting around eating nachos and watching TV. They were entirely boring. <laughs> uh, you know, most people when you deliver room service, because you see it all. Like you see people in, you know, half, you know, stages of undress. I even saw relatively famous people who would just come to the, the door with a towel on. Um, <laughs> or, but, and, and usually they would talk to you. You know, they'd look you in the eye. They'd say, how's it going? Something like that. Jordan never said a word. He just took the food, signed the bill. And he never once left a tip. Oh, oh Michael Jordan. <laughs> I'm not, str- I'm, I'm not, I mean, I don't know why, but I'm not surprised. I don't know. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I'll bet, I'll tell you some who probably tips really well. Steph. I'll bet Steph. And Steph, you think so? Yeah. Probably. Well, because you Barkley. probably, he's, yeah, Barkley over tips, but Steph's probably savvy enough to know if he didn't tip, everyone would know about it the next day. That's you true. know they might get coached. They might get coached on that these days. Um, they do. Yeah, you know, I, 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 I thought of Jordan back then. I think he was still kind of a small town guy, even though mm. he was in the NBA. He, he felt like a little sheltered and like, like I said, the hanger-on guy who was in the room. I don't know. It just, it just seemed like I don't know. Jordan. I mean, like a, he wasn't, he wasn't doing the cocaine. Right. <laughs> right. With the women, like the other NBA players were. Well, you know, you raise a good point. I was listening to a podcast today, and I may or may not cut this out later. Um, do you know who Jeff Perlman is? He's a, no. He writes books about sports. He actually wrote the he wrote Winning Time, the um, Lakers one that they made into the HBO oh, okay. thing. Oh, right, right. But he just wrote a book yeah. about Bo Jackson, and he was being interviewed about it. And he's like, Bo Jackson, I didn't know. He'd grown up in a three-room shack without running water. And he, wow. And he was basically just mute. Like, he didn't talk. He didn't, because he didn't know how to act. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. That... He also didn't work out. Well, and they, they didn't get all the coach, all the, like the players these days, like they're, they're brought up in a PR world from the time mm-hmm. they're like 12 at playing AAU basketball. I mean, they're, they're so poised um, and, and worldly by the time they're 18 or 19. And I think totally. that, that wasn't in place. I know in the NBA, even back then, I mean, I mean, those, those guys like Chris, it was Chris Mashburn, right? Yeah. Yeah. Washburn. Chris Washburn. Chris Washburn. People like him, they came, they came to the NBA and they were just like let loose into the world. And they were oh, like I know. You know, 19 or 19 or 20 and no one was telling them how to handle life well i know that i know football i don't know i'm sure basketball must do it too but part of your rookie training is this series of lectures from ex-players life skills yeah accountants and people you know don't get ripped off don't don't let your buddy open a restaurant with your money yeah apparently that's actually reggie jackson's job now for the astros players oh really yeah so that guy yeah so he also speaks spanish they got a lot of uh dominican players and middle uh, name is martinez Oh, I don't think I mm-hmm. I may have known that at one point, but uh, I had forgotten it. Well, I want to hear the David Bowie story. Oh, huh. uh, man, the yeah. David Bowie story is like a whole podcast. Ah, shit. I can't, I can't, I got, can't do it justice in uh, just a few minutes. Uh, we had no, our well, music I'll, season. I'll tell, but... I'll tell the beginning of it. Because um, like room service, I get there at like 6 in the morning, and usually there wouldn't be too many orders, actually. Or they'd be just, you know, a couple businessmen leaving early to the airport or something. And uh David Bowie filled the hotel. Hotel. It was like hmm. he, he had one. Actually, the tour was one of the first big rock tour tours that kind of set the template for other people to have mm-hmm. that same size of tour. Uh, so anyway, like 100, 200 David Bowie people in the in the hotel, and the hotel was just like totally uh, kind of blown apart by that. <laughs> like didn't hmm. know how to function to meet them meet their needs because they were up at all hours and it was just crazy. <laughs> and so I come in at six first call I get is Mr. Bowie would like, you know, whatever. And I thought it was David Bowie for sure. You know, <laughs> so I hustled, got everything ready, ran to the room 
it was some roadie without a uh. shirt, <laughs> trash with like bottles of whiskey and stuff. Uh. So I, I would tell this story much more dramatically because I've done it for Porchlight before. Mm. Uh, but essentially, I got about 86 calls like that throughout the day um, <laughs> until finally, after the restaurant closed, the final call of the day for Mr. Bowie, who I finally did not believe any of these calls. It was Mr. Bowie. Whoa. Um, I'll save the, the rest of that for another time. Okay. Oh, you know, it, this probably says more about me than it does about anything else, but I just want, in those stories, I want them to end with the celebrity just being a normal person. <laughs> like being polite or like having football he, on in the background or, you know. You know, most of them are. You know, I, I it was a horribly dysfunctional um, hotel. And like when I, when I served Jesse Jackson, I, I was probably a half hour, 45 minutes late. And he was like running for president at that time. Mm -hmm. And and his whole staff, like the, his campaign manager, was yelling at me because <laughs> oh, uh, he was he was going to speak in just a few minutes, and he got nothing for breakfast, not oh. his orange juice, and he, he had a cold. And and Reggie, I mean um, Jesse Jackson just put up his hand, quieted his campaign manager, took the orange juice, drank the orange juice, thanked me, and left. <laughs> oh, that's and, cool. And, and and you know when you when you do customer service, you get a really good sense of who people are by how they treat you. Yes, so for I've sure. Always, I've always I've, I've always thought Jesse Jackson must be a really good guy just because of the way he handled that. Okay, I'll forgive him for Jaime Town then. <laughs> oh yeah, I guess I forgot about that. <laughs> I did. I totally forgot about that. Yeah, but <laughs> not. Me. I guess we would. Yeah. So, <laughs> well, Grant, thank you. That experimental uh, format I think worked really well. And those were actually, I know you tried to soft sell them, but those were three great were stories. Awesome. Um, before we let you go, I know you do a million things, so perhaps you'd like to use this moment to promote a million things. Uh, when does this air? Yes. In the new Somewhere year. after the first of the year. Yes. Okay. Uh, my new thing uh, in 2023 is that I've got a book coming out called The Art of Brevity, hmm. and it's uh, my meditation on the aesthetic of brevity and minimalism uh, as it relates to my just kind of discovery of the form with the hundred word story and flash fiction. So cool. looking forward to publishing that book and going on tour with it and uh, even bringing it to Boise for story for I yeah. know I was going to mention that. We'll um, be hanging and I, out. And I always forget about your podcast. So tell us a little bit um, about that too. Yeah. It's a weekly podcast called right minded. And hmm. we talk to, we have a special guest author every week. We've had just amazing authors and my co-host Brooke Warner and I uh, really focuses on the creative process. Uh, we talk about publishing and, and things like that, but we really focus on the creative process uh, and talk to authors about their creative process. Uh, yeah. And, cool. uh, <clears throat> For people listening, we're recording this in November, so it's right smack in the middle of NaNoWriMo. How are you holding up? Good. This has been a good NaNoWriMo. People have shown up with, like, good spirits. We've got, you know, uh, about 500,000 people writing this year, hmm. including 100,000 kids and teens in our Young Writing Writers Program. And uh, it's always amazing to me just how people root each other on and how those kind of uh, gusts of encouragement carry people to the finish line. Cool. That's awesome. Cool. All right, Grant. Well, thank you so much for your time, and uh, we will see you in March at Story Fort. We have with us, uh, we have a rare treat. Our next reader is uh, literally wrote the book on fans. She did. Absolutely. Uh, Justine Gubar is presently, um, what, what specifically is your job with the Emmys? I am the head of sports awards. I run the sports Emmys. She runs the sports Emmys, and she's a longtime uh, ESPN 
person. She is a writer and a producer and has accomplished more in her life than I could ever hope to. She's fancy. And since she literally wrote the book on fans, we're going to have her uh, tell a story about sports super fans. That's perfect. Take it away, Justine. <laughs> well, I decided to go down the dark side. So <laughs> super fans, like super, I went down a rabbit hole. Let's just. Okay. That's, we're looking forward to it. All right. So ready to get dark? Let's go. Let's do it. Hashtag keep women out of sports. Hashtag tankles. Mm. I got the idea for my book, Fanaticus, Mischief and Madness in the Modern Sports Fan, after I endured the wrath of a very angry fan base. Between insults, name-calling, and even death threats, I started to wonder, what was it about the sports world that could bring out such ugliness? I knew sports was connective tissue that bonded strangers and that the commitment and loyalty of the most dedicated fans made for some truly entertaining tales, the super fans that you refer to. But I have to admit that dark side intrigued me. The vitriol started in the midst of a work assignment when I was working as an investigative producer for ESPN. I produced stories about off-the-field issues in sports. The goal was to peel back the layers of the sports world, seek answers, and hold the powerful to account for their actions. In sports, we know there's no shortage of power, money, ego, and that makes for some excellent storytelling and reporting. It was the spring of 2011, and I was in Columbus, Ohio, to report on a scandal with the in that. It was the spring of 2011, and I was in Columbus, Ohio, to report on a scandal within the Ohio State University football program. One of the biggest sports stories at that time was the sudden resignation of Ohio State's head football coach, Jim Tressel, who lied to his bosses about his players breaking rules. What started with a few star football players trading in on their fame to get cheap tattoos turned into allegations of widespread corruption, illegal benefits, and cover-ups. The scandal wasn't about skirting the rules of play, cheating on tests, or breaking the law. It involved flaunting the amateurism rules. It involved flaunting the amateurism rules of the organization that governs college football, the National Collegiate Athletic Association. Investigative reporting by media outlets, including ESPN, had set the stage for the forced resignation of Trestle, as well as the abrupt departure of Ohio State star quarterback Terrell Pryor. Despite these stunning exits, the scandal festered. After all, this was one of the most successful college football teams in the U.S., with a huge fan base spread throughout the country. When Ohio State was involved, just about everyone in the sports world would pay attention. Ohio State football fans were distraught that their program was under fire and complained about the media scrutiny. I was a card-carrying member of that media who was engaged in that scrutiny and had been in town for several weeks. One afternoon, a local sports talk show, one afternoon, a local sports talk radio show host somehow got my name and announced that I was spending too much time in their city, talking to former players, local car dealers, tattoo artists, and memorabilia dealers about how players would leverage their celebrity status to obtain items like cars and tattoos at a discount. This was considered impermissible at the time for an amateur athlete. According to a friend who was listening to this radio show host, he tried to call me on my hotel phone. Point, 
I know, room phones. <sighs> when I didn't pick up, he joked that he was going to send me flowers and chocolates if I'd just go home. This stunt riled up the Columbus faithful, and that's when the nastiness started, with irate fans filling up the Twitterverse and my email inbox with their rants. After that, I had to re-register at the hotel under a fake name and keep a low profile. It wasn't very fun. Even when I departed Ohio, without any chocolate or flowers, mind you, the rage followed me home to San Francisco. Someone had posted my home number on the internet, and my voicemail was laced with angry messages. Also quaint, a home number with voicemail. <laughs> the comments about my physical appearance were some of the most searing. Remember that hashtag, keep women out of sports? My gender was an apparent meme and also a problem. I was told I was no longer welcome in the state of Ohio. After listening to these messages, an ESPN colleague suggested I contact our corporate security, who deal with this stuff all the time. They recommended I file a complaint with the police. The police? Well, it seemed a little bit overblown, and I expected them to brush me off. At midnight, a patrol car literally came by my house to investigate. But there was really nothing they could do since no one had directly threatened to rape or murder me. Only indirectly. How comforting. I got a new number, removed my picture from Facebook, where I could see the pictures of the people who were saying these things to me. Really? That's all I'm going to say here. Really? <laughs> I knew that it was unlikely that any of these fans would physically come after me at my condo in San Francisco's Castro neighborhood. However, I was shaken by what had happened, and I couldn't stop thinking about it. Printed on the flip side of my ESPN business card was our corporate mission, to serve sports fans anytime, anywhere. But here's the paradox. While we exalt the passion of sports fans, we must also face the dangerous and dark side of their behavior. Fans launch tirades that blast the media all the time. I'm certainly not the only journalist to feel the intensity of angry fans. I knew that my experience was just a drop in the bucket. In my job, I regularly came across stories of unruly spectators at stadiums, rioting after a game, harassing opposing fans and players in boozy anonymity, and lighting up the internet with hateful speech. After a combustible cocktail of competition, alcohol, and testosterone, you never know what might happen. So despite what I will call a lack of hospitality, several years later, I returned to Columbus, Ohio to do reporting for my book, Fanaticus. Since messages from Facebook users were supposedly tied to actual identities, I did some sleuthing and tracked down some of my own harassers from three-year-old messages. At the time, I knew it would be a mistake to respond, but I had grown curious about what motivated these fans and thought it might add important perspective to my book. Turned out most of the harassers actually didn't live in town. Shows just how far the Ohio State fan base extends. I reached one fan on the phone. He was actually living in Miami. Sean had graduated from Ohio State in 2013 and said he didn't really remember much about contacting me with a mess. And Sean, who graduated from Ohio State in 2013, said he didn't really remember much about contacting me with a message entitled, honesty and integrity regarding your investigation. He bristled at my contention that his line, I simply advise you to do what's right 
And if you don't realize that Buckeye Nation will show you no mercy, felt vaguely threatening. He told me he was just explaining the power of a large fan base and that it's <laughs> all in the fun of sports. Not sure he gets to define the word fun for me. <laughs> Two days later, it was time for a house call. My friend Scott, a photographer who lives north of Columbus, kindly agreed to come with me. As a local, he felt guilty about the way some fans had treated me. We were in search of a fan whom we'll call Tommy, a 2011 Ohio State grad still living near campus in Columbus. We went to what we thought was his house and knocked on the door and a woman answered. I explained as best as I could the premise of my visit. She said she'd get Tommy for us. As we waited outside, I whispered to Scott what Tommy had said in his message. He's the guy who told me I was not even on the same level as a prostitute and a disgrace to oh, journalism. Geez. Since Tommy majored in journalism at Ohio State, he must know. I looked around. The paint was peeling on the gray porch, and it was dotted with dilapidated chairs, a snow shovel, and a cat carrier. A guy who looked to be in his 20s came to the door wearing a backward baseball cap and sweatpants. Hey, my name is Justine, I asked him. Are you Tommy? What do you want? He asked. Told him I just wanted to talk with him. He exploded. You're a shit journalist. You are fucking, fucking, you went out of your way to write a shit piece on people who are innocent. We knew all about it. Get the fuck off my porch. I tried for some sort of conversation, but he wouldn't have it. Get the fuck off, get the fuck off my porch. You and the outside the lines people can go suck shit. That's the show I work for, outside the lines. <laughs> so we got the fuck off his porch. The next day on the internet, Tommy blogged about the visit and conceded he probably hadn't handled it the, the best way. He and others in the comments section of the blog expressed curiosity as to why I was there. I tried to tell him the reason for my visit, but he wouldn't listen. Funny how he was so forthcoming on Facebook and the blog with his opinion, but fled from an in-person conversation. I can understand being caught off guard, so maybe he gets a little bit of a pass but come on, I haven't met too many sports fans who can't spend hours talking about their favorite teams. Was rational conversation just too much to ask? Maybe so. Sports creates a stark dichotomy between winning and losing, good guy and bad guy. To Tommy, I was wrong and he was right. In a black and white sports world, there's not a lot of room for gray. Jerry Jones, owner of the Dallas Cowboys, said he wants fans to either love the Cowboys or hate them. I understand the importance of having passion involved and not apathy, Jones said in a television interview I produced. If we're not the most popular team, we're always the most hated team. So that's oh, it. That was fantastic. That was fantastic, yeah. Justine. And we only have a couple minutes before we have to let you go, but the thing that strikes me is, when did you publish Fanaticus? Came out in 2015. 2015. I think if anything, it sort of signaled the opening of a torrent of behavior that has only gotten worse and is no longer confined to sports. I think about that all the time. Yeah. Like the, hmm. tribe, the tribalism in sports... We see it in our everyday life. That yeah, everything's sports. Oh, yeah. And the, 
before. And the idea of, of being able yeah. to be a horrible person hidden behind anonymity is more normalized now. Yes, yes. And the really interesting thing to me is you see sort of the partisanship of politics seeping into sports events. Like everything is sort of coming into this vitriolic, hateful mix, which is really mm -hmm. unfortunate. And, and those fans, they didn't think of you as a person. They were just trying to score points with other members of their tribe. Yeah, I was totally not a person. Although... I was a female, which I think was like less than a person. Yeah, I think that probably made it worse. I was really disappointed that when Tommy showed up on the porch, he didn't weigh 300 pounds. I really was hoping he'd weigh 300 pounds. <laughs> he might well, by now. Maybe. Said, trying to take the high road and not comment directly on the Facebook pictures of my tormentors. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of, uh, it's like the South Park uh, um computer guy the guy they show sitting playing computer games he's huge hmm. and he's eating chips and <laughs> well thank you so much justine thanks that for taking great. time oh my out gosh. it's great to talk to you yeah and, um, um Anytime. yeah well i guess we just want to know what we should know about you um for uh, you know anything to promote fans. yeah um i don't know uh, <laughs> Uh, Fanaticus is still available from your local bookseller online. And uh, if you're interested in what's going on with the best in sports media and sports production, you can follow the Sports Emmys on Twitter or Instagram. At Sports Emmys? Yes, the okay. Sports Emmys. Awesome. Yep. And we'll be starting a Patreon account to get Justine some new earbuds. I know. <laughs> you know what's going to happen? I'm going to find them. Yeah, you're going to find them five minutes from now. Later tonight. <laughs> I hope so. Oh, man. All right. Well, thank you, Justine. Thanks so much. Right. And nice Great to meet you. Larry. Take care. All right. Take care. Bye. All right. Bye. Okay. Our next storyteller who will be discussing his super fandom. <laughs> or, or a brush with greatness sort of super fandom experience is Ross Hargraves. Hargraves or Hargreaves? Hargraves. Hargraves. He is a graduate of the University of Idaho MFA program, a short story writer. Uh, you might be familiar with him. We've had him on the podcast before reading, what was the the last one? I talked about working at Barnes & Noble. That's right. Yes. 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 He's got some good new the ones about stories. that. First season, yes. Book, a lot of book talk. As far as like talk. TikTok book talk. Yeah. And, and I think Ross is also a gatherer of life experiences. That's yes. how I would describe him. <laughs> and the story is, is one of those. And yep. uh, I mean, yeah, Ross has uh, been a student and a friend for a number of years and a great writer and a funny man. And makes people uncomfortable every once in a while when we get through his stories <laughs> in the best possible way. At least I think so. But Ross, why don't you give us your story? All right. And he's reading this as a piece of auto fiction, which is a term I hate, but you know, <laughs> wait a minute, just What's autobiographical auto? fiction. Oh, okay. So yes, but it's yeah, just so it is a, it's a short story. All right. Let's uh, it's called the end zone. Let me tell you about the time I met the guy who poisoned Michael Jordan. I was at the end zone watching the 2007 NBA Western Conference Finals. The man next to me at the bar was nondescript, white, in the realm of 35 to 50, brown hair, normal nose. 
If he had been wearing a suit, he could have been an X-Files villain. Both of us were enjoying 32-ounce ice-cold mugs of Pabst Blue Ribbon. The end zone was across the street from Boise State. It wasn't a huge bar. They had shuffleboard up against the back wall and one pool table. Blue and orange Boise State shit hung all over. During Bronco games, the place was always wall-to-wall. My apartment was in the area, so when I got lonely and bored, I would come in to watch sports and drink too much PBR. That night was slow. Besides me and the man at the bar, there were two couples playing shuffleboard. The San Antonio Spurs were playing the Utah Jazz. The Spurs were kicking the shit out of the Jazz. My team, the Phoenix Suns, had lost to the Spurs in the previous round. On the TV, Tim Duncan scored. I hate the fucking Spurs, I said. (laughs) Who likes them, the man said. The Desperate Housewives. The Jazz started a mild run. The bartender looked at me. Like all the bartenders at the end zone, he used to be a linebacker for Boise State. I nodded and he brought me another 32-ounce Pabst. You like the Jazz? I asked the man. I'm from Utah, he said. Used to be ride or die back when they were good. Stockton and Malone, I said. He nodded. Hornacek and Ostertag? He nodded. Tom Rimcheck Chambers? <laughs> this he ignored. The Spurs got hot and took a double-digit lead. God damn it, I said. I met Malone once when he came to Boise. I spent all day in line at the outlet mall, waiting for a chance to get his signature on my basketball. A lot of people were pissed because he wouldn't sign basketball cards. You get your ball signed? I sure did. The mailman, the man said. Never could deliver a championship. The man took a long drink, finished his 32-ounce Pabst. I always wish the Jazz could have beat the Bulls one of those years, I said. Wasn't going to happen, and we poisoned Michael Jordan up in Park City. (laughs) The bartender came up, and the man switched from PBR to Jack and Coke. Beer before liquor, never sicker, I thought, but couldn't remember if that was right. The man sipped his new drink. I mean, I poisoned Michael Jordan. And then he went and scored 38 points. Holy shit, I said. I know what they say, the man said. It wasn't no hangover, and it wasn't no pizza. You know the game. Game five of the 1997 NBA Finals. Bulls and Jazz tied two games apiece in a best-of-seven series. Before the start of game five, it was announced that Jordan would play despite flu-like symptoms. The Bulls were down 16 early before suffering MJ went off for 38 points and led the Bulls to a 90-88 victory. After the game, exhausted, Jordan collapsed into the arms of Scottie Pippen. I'd moved to Park City for skiing, the man said. A friend got me a job as a server in some swank restaurant. We got celebrities all the time with the film festival, so we kept a bottle of Visine hidden in the kitchen if any of them were assholes. You know what Visine does? Puke and shit. He laughed. Every one of us working there loved the jazz. Fucking loved them. So the night before the game, I'm waiting on Michael Jordan and a big group of black guys. Ron Harper? I didn't recognize any of the other guys. I went back into the kitchen and poured half a bottle of Visine on MJ's entree before the chef sauced it up. Then I served it to him. How did he tip? I asked. The man shrugged. I felt so fucking proud of myself. Told my friends they'd make me a playable character in NBA Jam. (laughs) After the game, I never felt worse. There was no beating him. Not even Charles Barkley could do it. Still. It's legendary, I said. The modern equivalent to the labors of Hercules. He winked at me. Now, I'm sure hearing this, you think the guy was full of shit, telling me a story he just made up, perhaps a lie he told in a hundred different bars in a thousand different ways. I prefer to think he was telling the truth. Makes me feel like I was part of something. 
We continued to watch the game and drink our drinks. Eventually, the Spurs won. I went to piss, and when I got back, the man was gone. I finished my PBR and ordered two more before calling it a night. So, nice fiction? Mostly true. (laughs) (laughs) In the end zone, yeah. Larry, have you been to the end zone? No, I I drove by it once, and I thought, I want to go there. It's it's what Ross said. It's it's in a PSU bar and kind of a little divey. Ross, I continue to be a huge fan of your work. Thanks. Yes, me too. So... I, I, what comments do you have? Well, I don't as hard as I know. Uh, I I remember that game very well. I remember that run the Bulls. Well, well, it's legendary. We were, the flu game. The flu game, exactly. But it was actually the Visine game. Yeah. <laughs> do you believe this? Uh, I mean, I want to. I, you want to believe? Yeah. It's like X Files. There you it go. It is. Yeah. I I mean, like, I think the guy was just either he was just making a generalized like, like. I don't know that Park City poisoned Michael Jordan and mm. you know and then like I don't know he kind of made it seem like it was more like him or or whatever but I think it was more the idea that Park City as a city Salt Lake as an area like poisoned Michael Jordan <laughs> and he scored 38 points Drop and 38 <laughs> <laughs> that, have, yeah that, have you ever tried to google it I, yeah, when I was first started writing this story, I did a lot of research and like, I mean, there, that's not one of the rumors, but there was like that he was hungover yeah. or that, that he had a bad pizza. Which I don't believe the hungover because I'm sure he played hungover. Oh yeah. Plenty of times. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if he was pretty, I mean, watching the last parts of the last dance, like he was, yeah, he's not one to fuck around with the, <laughs> the game, you know, he wanted to win. That's true. Oh, absolutely. But I think he also had a belief that he could, no matter what condition he was in, he would be the best player in the world. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. He's probably lots of late nights MJ. playing the cards. Yeah. <laughs> We're an angry dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I know. Um, yeah, we were suffering Sonics fans there. We had, Sonics got in there too and yeah. got beaten six. Oh, yeah, that's right. They yeah. did. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, what else? Yeah, Larry. I don't know. We could talk NBA, but I think uh, that uh, might, you know. I don't want to ruin the story by going off some weird tangent about how my favorite basketball team suddenly is no good. So, <laughs> so I'm just going to say thanks, Ross. That was fantastic. Uh, yeah. First, first piece of fiction to appear uh, that so far. That thus far, yeah. Thus far, and well read, well done. Absolutely. And Ross Hargreaves, um, you can find him slinging books out at Barnes and Noble in Boise, Idaho, if you want to you know, track him down and some of his work. I know you've had a couple things published recently or close, you know, at least one I know of. And then where, where do we find your work? Um, yeah, you can go to quibble.com or quibblelit.com. And I have a story in their trouble issue called skunk ape sauce <laughs> then it's, it's it's a little spicy be ready so yes yeah. so <laughs> <it's> <laughs> reader be warned it's a little spicy. there might be people and parts covered in skunk ape sauce um within the story so <laughs> it's a great story but yeah well thanks ross hargraves not mm-hmm. hargreaves and we love having you on yeah thanks cool Well, there you have it, folks. Uh, Three perspectives of fandom or fanaticism. Super fans. Super fans. People who went to extremes-ish and also, yeah, in two of the stories for sure. Yeah, definitely, right? Man. Ooh. Um, 
That's it for us for this episode. But before we go, there's some people we need to thank, of course. I want to thank the the writers and artists that came on and storytellers that came on board. Mm-hmm. And also, we want to thank... Eavesdrop. Eavesdrop Studios, E-A-S-E-Drop.com. And, and of course, Brett Battistain. Brett Battistain. Now, if you were listening today and thinking, I am a fan, I'm a super fan, or I met Michael Jordan... We want to hear from you. Go to yeah. our Facebook group, Story Forward. Go to Twitter or go to Instagram, story.forward, and share that with us uh, or tell your story. Maybe you know something about the alleged Michael Jordan poisoning. <laughs> maybe, you are, maybe you're a fan from Columbus, Ohio with a bone to pick. Uh, Take that somewhere else. Uh, yeah, we don't need that. <clears throat> but until then, you know what we're going to keep doing? We're going to keep moving the story forward.